You guys can squeal too. It's okay. I mean, there you go. Everybody's excited to hear the word of the Lord. All right. We're in church. Woo. All right. So let me ask you three. I think they're really good questions. Maybe once I get to the third one, you're going to be like, oh, oh, they're bad questions. Number one, what is hypocrisy? Thank you. What is hypocrisy? Now, don't answer. Obviously, that's what we're going to talk about today. Is hypocrisy bad? Is it? Is hypocrisy bad? Number three, are you a hypocrite? That's the question I don't think anybody wants to hear today. Every, we'll, we'll spend a, we, we, you would love to spend a lot of time. I would love to spend a lot of time on part one and part two. Part three, though, oh, we're going to have to do some self-reflecting. We're going to have to ask ourselves some tough questions, and we're probably not going to like the answer. Turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 11. This, for me, is one of those scriptures in the Bible where I read it, and it's like fire coming off the page. Like you would lose an eyebrow if it was fire, because it is so jam-packed full of truth and importance and relevancy. People say that, well, the Bible is barbaric, old-fashioned for another time, and I would say that the Bible is timely because it deals with humans, and human nature has never changed. Human nature was developed uh, in a wrong way in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit and sin entered into the world. That catastrophically changed the nature of man. And the nature of man has been the same ever since. There are those who tell you that we're evolving, that we're changing, we're getting better. And I would say, no, no. The more we hear about the world, the more we learn about the crises that occur all around this globe, people aren't getting better. The world isn't getting better. The world is getting worse. And there are those who turn to religion or turn to uh, moralism in hopes that the world will get better and all that does is make more problems. We want to go back to the word of God. See, what has happened in Galatia, Paul has started a church. He shared the gospel. Everything was built upon that. Then Judaizers came in. <clears throat> Excuse me, Judaizers came in. They began to say things like, well, yes, Jesus is, is almost sufficient, but you also need to be circumcised. You need to complete works of the law in order for you to be saved, to protect this inheritance. Um, basically what they've done is created works and legalism so that it's no longer all based on the grace found in Jesus and faith exercised because of it. It's all based on your performance. You need to perform in order to gain God's favor so that one day, maybe, just possibly, when you stand before him, he will ask you to enter in or permit you to enter in to his presence rather than damn you to hell for all of eternity. So Paul has to fix this because that's not the gospel. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is that while you were, a, while you were still a sinner— Christ died for you. That's what Romans 5 and 8 tells us. That you didn't do anything. God loved you so much that he sent his son into this world to die for your sins. Whether you wanted him to or not, he did that. 
And now he is calling his people to repentance and faith in Jesus. And this, this is not a kosher message for our culture and time. Repentance, nobody wants to hear repentance because you have to admit you've been doing something wrong. Repentance means I've turned away from that which is leading to death back to Jesus, that which is giving me life. Faith, no, it's too simple. I need to be doing stuff. I need to be lighting a candle, saying a prayer, meeting with a holy man, meeting in a holy place. That's why I love that song, It Is You, that we sing, because it's, it's saying, we've come to this place. We've come at this time. We're lifting our hands. Will you meet with us, Lord? It doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't matter that we are inside this building or outside of this building. When we have church on Saturdays, God will be there in the same way that he is here. When you leave this building, God will be with you wherever you go. And don't let that, I mean, let that be an encouragement. Let that also be a warning that just because you've left these walls that God does not see what you do. If you are in sin rather than in Christ, the Lord is aware you aren't distant from him in that way. So what does it have to do with hypocrisy? We're going to read an account on our little roadmap that we set up a few weeks ago of Paul's three, three experiences. Three experiences that he had in meeting the quote-unquote church leadership. His first account was him uh, going before the people and them marveling that Jesus had done something in him. Saul, the, the executioner of Christians, that, that this man who, who had these orders to go and kill Christians, who had the, the approval of the religious elite to destroy Christianity as blasphemy. And when I say destroy, I mean literally kill. To the point where, I believe it's in, in the book of Acts, maybe chapter 7, where a young man named Stephen is stoned to death for his faith in Jesus. Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes Paul, is standing approving, clapping, saying, yes, this is what we should be doing. The early church marveled that God took him, met him on the road to Damascus, and changed him into a Christian. Didn't just give him a new set of rules, didn't just clean him up morally, but completely and radically transformed him. Changed him in every sense of the word. Sometimes God changes you so radically it changes your name. We see that with Paul, we see that with Peter, we see that with other individuals. They're so radically changed, it changes everything about them. Church, if Jesus has met you, and if you have met Jesus, it should radically change you. You should go from one team to the other. You should not be a cleaned up version of your old self. You should not be just a better moral person. You should be radically changed from the inside out. That will change your morals. That will change your outlook on life. But that's not the equivalent of knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus means you have completely changed to the point where people of your old life look at you and marvel at what Jesus has done. Not at what you have done. That was the point of Paul's first encounter with the church. They marveled. They praised God. Not because of what he was doing but because what God had done in him. They knew his reputation. Here he was, murderer of Christians, now a Christian, a Christian himself. His second example uh, starts in verse, or rather chapter 2, verse 1, where he meets with the church leadership. He goes to Jerusalem, and he's going to keep himself accountable. He has this gospel message he's received, 
his belief is that God has called him to preach to the Gentiles. As much as he wants to preach to his brethren, the Jews, he feels, he knows that God has called him to preach to the Gentiles. So he goes before the church leadership, men like Peter, James, and John, and says, look, here's the message I'm preaching. All I want to know is make, all I want to make sure of is that we are on the same page. Paul wasn't going necessarily to, to be able to pad his resume, to, to uh, network. He wasn't going to gain the influence of men. He was going to make sure that he was accountable to somebody and that he was preaching the actual gospel. There's a lot of rogue Christians nowadays. They don't like their church, they go start another church. They don't like their church, they start writing a blog on the internet. They don't like their church, they start saying bad stuff on Facebook. They leave their ministry and then start bad-mouthing their, their old ministry on the internet. It's this, it's this false sense of bravery that folks have on the internet, and it's just wrong. The, the greatest goal here is unity under Jesus. There are times where we will be uniform based on what we do here at this chapel, but it always comes second to God's word, a distant second. If God's word contradicted our traditions, we would crucify those traditions in a heartbeat because of God's word. And then there was a time to divide. There were men coming in, these Judaizers that I mentioned, who came in and were saying, no, you must be circumcised too. And Paul says, we, we just distance ourselves from them. We did not listen to them one bit. We did not take heed of what they were saying. We divided from them. They were not Christian brothers and sisters. They were on the outside trying to infiltrate the gospel. There's a time to be united. There's a time to be uniform. And there's a time to divide. This story, the third experience, happens on what you would call Paul's home turf uh, in Antioch. Not his home, but a ministry center where he worked out of. Formerly, he had gone to Jerusalem. And now the leaders are coming to him. And this encounter falls into, I don't want to call them gray areas, but seemingly gray areas from last week's sermon of unity, uniformity, and division. Because this is going to contradict those three and give us something even greater. So verse 11 <clears throat> says this, But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, who is Paul's traveling companion at this point, preacher of the gospel, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, and that is key, you have to remember that verse. You take that out of there, all this just becomes bickering and uh, a big dumb war that doesn't mean anything. In step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that is Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Jesus, your word is good. And I feel as though we are treading upon very delicate ground. There are those who would take this and use it to cause division, and I don't think that's the point. There are those who would take this and use it to cause legalism, and I don't think that's the point either. Father, I pray today that the truth of your word would, would rise to the top, that we would see it, live it, and live by it. And may your son Jesus be glorified in it. In his name we pray. Amen. 
Let me give you the, the, the nickel version, my version of this story. Peter has come to Paul's place where he runs leader, where he runs his ministry, and Peter is being a hypocrite. A lot of people like to preach, and it's not necessarily wrong. I just want to tweak this a little bit. They'll preach that in the Gospels, Peter was a, a bumbling uh, Chris Farley type. That he was, you know, he, he's kind of, you know how the skipper was always like, Derp! when Gilligan hit him in the stomach? You get that a lot. That's my skipper impersonation. You don't pay for the jokes. They come for free. Um, you get that a lot. But then Acts chapter 2 happens, and all of a sudden Peter is this mighty man of God. All of a sudden he's not Chris Farley anymore. Now he's this big warrior theological monster that just goes and, and just confronts. And that's true. But where they get it wrong is they teach that Peter's now perfect. That's, that's where people get that wrong, that he's no longer capable of being a human, that he's now superhuman. Paul, and I believe Paul rightly, points out that Peter, first amongst leaders, whatever you want to call him, is just as capable of hypocrisy as the rest of us. If we think that we are above hypocrisy, ask yourself if you are better than Peter or Paul or James or John and realize, yeah, we're not, I'm not. So I'm just as susceptible to, to the slavery of hypocrisy as anybody else. Peter is, is, is okay with eating food with Gentiles, non-Jews. Anybody here Jewish? We're all Gentiles. So imagine Peter, he's cool with us having a potluck, sitting down together and having food, eating some bacon, having a good time, potlucking it up in the other room over here. But then... Judaizers come in. Don't be mistaken. These are not Christians. These are not people who just have a different form of the gospel. These are non-Christian, non-gospel preaching men and women in groups. They come inside, but because of their Jewish heritage, Peter all of a sudden is like, whoa, I wasn't eating with these people. I didn't have any bacon. What are you talking about? No, I wash my hands. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not with these people. All of a sudden, he's Chris Farley again. Oh, dude, I, I'm, I, no, I just was passing by making sure they were preaching right or some lame excuse. And these people have such power that other leadership starts doing the same. I start doing the same. Other people who serve start doing the same. That's what's happened. And Paul is there observing everything. He's just watching this all go down, saying, wow. This man who preaches the gospel, a pillar in the church, a leader amongst leaders, is a hypocrite. Rather than being passive, Paul decides to make the initiative to confront Peter. Not behind his back, via social media. Of course, it didn't exist then, but today, via social media texting an email. He's not, he's not going behind Peter's back. He's not, oh, Peter, you're good. And then going behind and saying, ah, Peter, he's a jerk. He goes to Peter's face, says, I opposed him to his face. What's the deal, man? You're teaching the Gentiles. They don't have to live like Jews, but when the Jews show up, all of a sudden you have to act like a Jew. Hypocrisy. Let's go back to our first question. What is hypocrisy? Our culture will teach that hypocrisy 
is doing one thing and saying another. And that's partly true. Uh, Parents are famous for saying, do as I say, not as I do. That's just basically a parent loudly saying, I'm a hypocrite. What is hypocrisy? Biblically, in the New Testament, hypocrisy is one who wears a mask, one who has a facade, one who lives a certain way in front of people, but behind the scenes or when nobody's looking, live entirely different. In the Old Testament sense, in the word used in the Old Testament, it's one who is, who is profane, one who is godless. It's more than just somebody who says one thing and does another. It's someone who is separate from God because God is in the business of being transparent. If there are things we don't understand about God, it's not because God has not shown them to us. It's because we are limited in our capacity of understanding things. Paul said this, that he had seen things in heaven that he was not permitted to share. It was unlawful for him to share them. It was just he was incapable of rightly portraying what he had seen. John goes, he has this vision in the book of Revelation, and we still marvel at what he saw. We're still trying to figure out everything that happens in the book of Revelation. Here's the big key. Jesus comes back, redeems his people, and destroys Satan and sin. That's the big thrust of the book of Revelation. Hypocrisy is not just saying one thing and doing another. It's living one way here and then living this way there. Real practical example. You come to church, and you're real churchy. And then you go to work, and you're real worky. I'm making up words as I go along. You go home, and you're completely different. And you go to the marketplace, and you're different. And you go to the social club, and you're different. And you go on Facebook, and you're really different. All of a sudden, you're a political activist. All of a sudden, <clears throat> all of a sudden you know how to fix the world. All of a sudden, you're brave enough to say things on social media that you only think in the midst of real people. It's this false sense of bravery that we find on the internet. That's the biblical sense of hypocrisy. Is hypocrisy bad? We should all nail this one. Yes. Jesus says some of his most scathing remarks of the whole gospel in regards to the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy. He said things like, You wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is filthy. You're like whitewashed tombs. The the, the casket on the outside looks really good and fancy, but on the inside, you're rotting, dying bones. People will wrongly say, okay, let's fix the inside. It's it's not either or. Jesus wasn't saying it was bad that the outside was whitewashed. It was bad because the inside was corrupt. Get them both clean get them both on the same page otherwise if you flip it it's still hypocrisy if the inside is clean and the outside is dirty still hypocrisy you haven't solved anything so yes hypocrisy is bad are you a hypocrite don't answer that yet the answer is yes by the way Peter's acting one way in front of the Jews. Peter's acting one way in front of the Gentiles. He's being a hypocrite. We're going to talk about sin a little bit. Normally, I try to keep sin underneath the umbrella of sin. And if it falls underneath that umbrella, well, then you need to stop doing it. You need to seek Jesus. You need to ask forgiveness. You need to repent. But that lifestyle can no longer continue. 
And I allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of the sin that you might be partaking in. So if it's pornography, the Lord convicts you of pornography. If it's religion, then the Lord convicts you of religion. If it's, if it's this, if it's that, you have your flavor and God will convict you of it and then you repent of it. But today, I'm going to take another step forward and we're going to talk about the sin of hypocrisy. There is no way to paint hypocrisy in a positive light. For the parents who say, do as I say, not as I do, what they, have, what they have failed to do is grasp the opportunity to show themselves broken before the Lord, the need to ask for forgiveness for the wrongs that we've done in the past. There will come a day in an age where I have to tell my son there are things I am instructing him to not do that dad himself has done. And that, yes, indeed, I am a hypocrite. But being a hypocrite has experientially given me the data I need to process and say, you know what, son? This leads to pain, misery, sin, death, and separation from God. And I'm asking that you would trust me and trust the Lord when we instruct you not to do these things and leave it in the hands of the Lord at that point. Hypocrisy is always, always bad. Jesus severely rebukes the Pharisees. What they were doing was being very religious and legalistic without knowing God. Here's how you know if you're being legalistic or religious. If you can do everything without Jesus, then it's religion and it's legalism and it's a red flag. If Jesus is not necessary to pull off the plan you have for your life, you have a bad plan. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. He must be at, he must not just be mixed in to our recipe for life. He is the recipe for our life. Jesus said, I came to give life and life more abundant. And if you find you're in a place where you have no life, then question whether you have met the risen Savior, the risen Lord, the Son of God named Jesus. Question that. Don't be afraid of that. Don't, don't avoid that question and just keep trucking along like everything's going to be okay because at some point it's all going to come crashing down. Today is a day to question that and come to an answer. Are you a hypocrite? We're all hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite. I stand before you preaching a gospel where there are times where I doubt and disbelieve. And I get loud and I use lots of illustrations and it seems like Pastor Tony knows the gospel. No, because there are days where I forget the gospel and I find myself in the folly of sin and I have to repent and ask for forgiveness all over again. And that makes me a hypocrite. That's also what makes me an expert at hypocrisy. You don't put the novice up here, right? You put the expert, the expert at hypocrisy. So I'm a hypocrite. We're hypocrites. It's not here to just, we're not here just to accuse one another of being hypocrites. We're here to find a solution to hypocrisy so that we are no longer segmented individuals where we're one way here at this place and we're one way here at this place. Here's a really good test. When you come to church, do you use words that you don't use anywhere else? The word blessing comes out a lot more. You never use that out there, but you use it all the time in here. You have a whole vocabulary just for here that you'd never use at work, that you'd never use at home, that you'd never use at the market, that you'd never use in business. If that's the case, you are, you are in the sin of hypocrisy because you are one way here and one way there. 
See, we look at sin and we'll look at the big ones, the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll. We'll point our fingers, we'll get all riled up, and we'll get on our soapboxes and, and blah, blah, blah. But we fail to realize that with the sin of hypocrisy, what we've done is that we've celebrated it. We, we've, we've dressed it up. We, we've brought it alongside us to be our friend. We're okay with it. And I tell you, friends, that's more dangerous of a sin. The most dangerous sin you have in your life right now is the one that you have dressed up and found acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. The culture today is trying to redefine what God finds acceptable. That doesn't change anything. You can redefine all you want. God has given us his definition. Do we all live by it 24 hours a day, seven days a week? No, we all fail. We fail miserably. If, if, you, if you're like me, um, you like football. And one of the best things about football is the bloopers. When I was a kid, my mom bought me these VHS tapes for the kids who will be hearing this later. VHS tapes were kind of like DVDs um, <clears throat> or things you download off the internet. They were these big black cassette things, and there was tracking involved. <clears throat> and, you, and, and she bought me this. And it was NFL bloopers from like the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I watched those things till they would no longer uh, play in the VCR. They were amazing, the bloopers. You can learn a lot from those. What not to do. If, if we were to pinpoint all of our sin, it would be a, just a big, long blooper reel of us just trying. But there's a difference between falling into sin and falling in your efforts to move forward. There's a difference between falling into sin and staying there, falling into sin, getting up and walking forward again in Jesus, dusting yourself off, asking for forgiveness, repenting, and living the same life each and every day. Hypocrisy is a worse sin than any other sin that we are probably facing right now because it's the one that's cloaked in Jesus. And that doesn't make it less of a sin. That just makes it more dangerous. So what do we do? We do what Paul does. We confront sin. If you have sin in your life, the first thing you have to do is confront it. Don't run from it. Don't say, well, no, it's not that bad. I'm not doing what they're doing. I, I'm much better than I was. No, are you sinning? Someone came up to me the other day, said I was doing this and it was wrong, but I don't feel like it was all that wrong. Is it sin? Let's just keep it black and white. Is it sin? Yes. Okay, then repentance is needed. God is there. God's there to forgive. God loves to forgive his children. God loves it when you repent. He's big on it. He loves when you come to him. He's not there ready to just destroy you because you've repented of your sin. He's there like with the, prodigal, the father of the prodigal son, ready to embrace you. The child who has left, the child who has been gone, who has been separated from him because of sin. But we still need to confront sin. Many in the church are much too passive today when it comes to sin, when it comes to a lot of things, but especially sin. Now, here's the, here's the bad way to take this. Let's find every little thing and point it out. God, it's sin, 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 sin. Everybody's sinning. You're sinning. You didn't say God bless you. That's sin. You didn't, you didn't pray before your meal. That's sin. Also, I know that in doing this, I'm painting a big target on my back. That at some point, someone's going to come to me and say, you know, Pastor Tony, interesting sermon you have. I have something to talk to you about. I welcome that. 
I understand that that's what I'm stepping into. But I stepped into that the minute I decided that uh, indeed the Lord wanted me to be a pastor. People, people don't generally go after those who are in the congregation. They go after the leader. And I'm okay with that. I will more than likely tell you, yes, you are correct. I'm a sinful hypocrite. I'm repenting and I need Jesus, just like you. But is it wrong to confront? See, hypocrisy, in this case, and in many instances, hypocrisy is just the symptom. We're very good at treating symptoms, but we don't get to the the actual cause. When you treat symptoms, you ever seen those guys that spin the plates on sticks? I don't know how they do it. I don't know why they do it, but they do it. And they spin the sticks, and they get like five or ten of them. And what do they do? They keep running back and forth to keep them spinning because you got to keep spinning. And the momentum only keeps them going so far. And uh, and they, they just exhaust themselves going back and forth trying to keep everything delicately balanced. When you treat symptoms, that's basically what's happening. You're that guy trying to keep everything balanced. You're never treating the actual cause. In this case, the cause is the fear of man. Peter was afraid of the Judaizers. Let me tell you the only thing you should be afraid of. It's what the Bible tells us to be afraid of, to have the fear of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean be afraid of God as though he's going to squash you one day. What it means is to be reverent towards him, to realize he holds life. Imagine yourself suspended above the Grand Canyon, held by a rope. You would fear the rope that it might snap and you would die. Praise God that he is a rope that will not snap. He is a a, a lighthouse, as we sing, that never goes dark. He is a flame that continuously burns. We don't have to fear him being gone, but we do have to come to him in reverence and respect. Peter feared men and legalistic, moralistic, religious men. I can't think of anybody we should be less fearful of. There are men on television today who fall into that category, and Christians are afraid of them. Why? They're not Jesus. They have no power over us. There are men on TV with their bad theologies, and we're afraid, and they said, give me money. I better give them money, or God's going to not rebuke the devourer. Why? Is God no longer your father? Has something changed in the gospel that nobody else is privy to? Fear God. Everybody else, they only have the power to take your life, but not, not your life and your soul and your spirit. That's, the, that's, the, that's what Jesus said in the gospels. Peter fears man. Here's generally the first response when you confront sin. The Bible says not to judge. Don't judge me. You ever notice when people quote that scripture, they quote the King James, like as though that is the the more authoritative version of it. Thou shall not judge. Don't judge me in my sin. Let me give you three observations if that's your go-to. Number one, you better know where to find that verse. If you're going to quote that one, but you don't know where to find it, don't bring me that verse. Know where to find that verse. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. I looked at my notes. 
Don't be too impressed. First, know where to find it. Pray that you haven't said it to someone who knows what it actually says. There are most people you say that verse and like, oh, that's right. Jesus said that. I shouldn't judge. I better stop. I better stop confronting them on their sin. I'm being judgeful. And then the sinner walks free. But if that person says it to the right person who actually knows what that verse says, what it says in context, you're going to walk away limping because they're going to tell you what it says and they're going to be right. And they're not going to be morally or, 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 or religiously above you, but they're going to call you out and you're going to have to endure that. Lastly, when you bring up that verse, all you've done is admitted that you're guilty. See, if you were to come to me and bring a claim or an allegation that was false, Pastor Tony, I saw you last week in Nevada. It's a pretty serious allegation, I know. You know what I would say to you? I wouldn't say, you shouldn't judge me. I'd say, no, I wasn't. I, I wasn't there. I just, I just wasn't. When you say you shouldn't judge, all you're saying is, I'm guilty of that, and I want you to stop talking about it. I'm guilty, and I know I'm guilty, but I don't want to repent. And I don't want to admit that I'm wrong. So stop judging me. You can diffuse most arguments if you just know where that scripture is found, know what Jesus is actually saying, and then continue in your confrontation of sin. If you want a really good resource on that verse, go on the internet to our Facebook page or to our SoundCloud page and listen to Pastor Mike Kessler's uh, whole sermon from our In Jesus' Name, You're Wrong series, part 13. It's all about that scripture and in its context. That will be the go-to for most people you have to confront. Can you judge people eternally to hell? No. No, you, you don't have that right. Can you judge that their sin is wrong? Yes, you can do so in love to bring them out of that. Let me give you a really good analogy of this. You're walking down the street. Hey, there's a burning building. Hey, your friend's in there. So you go up and you run and you get as close as you can. Hey, the building's burning. Come out. Don't judge me. Don't judge my burning building. I was cold. Don't judge. That's silly, right? Most people would say, oh, my house is on fire. Didn't know it. Okay, thank you. Thank you for warning me. Thank you for saving me. Now, you go in there. Your house is on fire because you're stupid. And nobody loves you anymore. That's bad. It's, it's, it's a symbiotic type of a thing or a synergistic type of a thing, rather. You're telling them in love and you're hoping for a response in love. Most people don't want to hear that their house is on fire because it's their house. They don't want to hear that their life is a train wreck because it's their life. And it's all they've got. And if they've been doing things wrong, that's a lot of crow to eat. That's a lot of repenting to do. And people don't like to hear that. So they pull out the thou shalt not judge verse. Are you allowed to judge people and damn them to hell or permit them to heaven? 
No. Are you allowed to say, hey, what you're doing is wrong, and I don't think Jesus would like it. Let me give you some verses. Let's sit down. Let's talk. Let me show you. Let me, let me convey to you the love I have for you. You have every right to do that because you're called to help the brethren, to help the church. Now, the non-church, the non-believers, you can tell them all day long. You can tell them the verses you have, everything else. Yeah, they like what they're doing. And they're going to have to be broken by it to find Jesus. You can still tell them they're wrong. But I think it's funny when Christians tell non-Christians, you shouldn't do that because the Bible says. They don't believe the Bible. But they probably know what it says. They probably have parents who were Christians and decided to do it anyways. <clears throat> now, the point of this is not division. So that would be our tendency. You didn't, you're wrong, and now I'm going to divide from you. Here's what we don't find in all of this, that Paul divided himself from the rest of the group. Went off, decided to start his own church or denomination, to write his, you know, his own version of the gospel. There was the gospel that he was going to continue to preach. These were his brothers and sisters in Christ. This was the church that was going to be you know, on top of Jesus, the foundation of the world to come. Pete, Paul doesn't use this as, as a way to one-up Peter, to, to gain superiority over him, to go around bashing Peter. He confronts Peter because he loves Peter, because Jesus loves Peter, because Peter's like everybody else, and because Paul is like everybody else. It wasn't an opportunity for Paul to gain more ground or more standing. It was a time to help a brother who was at, he was engulfed in sin. Division, much like divorce, is not always God's best. If you find yourself divorced, this is not a word to condemn you. It's really not. What I'm telling you is probably something you already know, that divorce and division is not to be taken lightly. We have counseled husbands and wives, my wife and I, and the threat of divorce is always there. And there's never any rest and there's never any peace because one person is always, always scared that the other is going to leave. I truly believe that's one of the reasons why God in, in the Old Testament and then quoted again in the book of Hebrews reminds us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Some of you like being alone, and I get that. But for the rest of us, there is that fear that someone will leave. And God promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us, which is also a reminder to not be a hypocrite. Because when you're a hypocrite, God sees that hypocrisy. But we go back to the verse. In step with the gospel. This is why Paul confronted Peter. Paul didn't confront Peter because... Peter didn't look the part. He didn't confront Peter because Peter was worshiping on a different day, worshiping loudly, worshiping quietly. He was wearing a suit or he was wearing jeans. I mean, he didn't confront him for those superficial, non-eternal reasons. He confronted him because by his actions, he was preaching a different gospel. 
He was preaching that salvation is found not only in the name of Jesus, but in works as well. And that's why Paul confronts Peter. If you have to confront somebody, be very clear. You're also putting the target on yourself. Jesus makes it very clear in the same context of thou shalt not judge in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, that if you see a speck in your brother's eye, first take the plank out of your own eye. It's a pretty well-known verse. Sinners are really good at finding the verses that create loopholes. There is no loopholes. Here's what the verse says. Take the plank out, then deal with the speck. So if you see somebody doing something, let's say, let's say I'm calling you out because of hypocrisy, like I am today. That means first I have to take the plank of hypocrisy out of my eye, right? Got to deal with that first, and then we'll deal with the specks in your eye. Peter has to be dealt with. Paul's got to make sure you see him observing. He's looking around. You can see him in the presence of all these people. They're all doing it. Barnabas, Barnabas, we've sat and talked about this, Barnabas, and now you're being a hypocrite too. And then he confronts. It's not that Paul is perfect, but Paul is the man that God is going to use in that moment. When you're confronted with sin, your first response might be to be defensive. Let work through that and get to the meat of the issue. Am I really being a hypocrite? The answer is yes. We're all hypocrites. Hypocrisy is living one way and being another way somewhere else. Whether, whether that's good or bad doesn't matter. It's being Joe Church on Sunday, and maybe you're still a nice guy on Monday, but you've forgotten all that because that's for then, not now. I, I, can't, I can't have integrity in my business um, because this is the way that the world works, and uh, if I don't one-up uh, the person, they're going to cheat me. Okay, you've forgotten everything. That doesn't apply. What happened Sunday doesn't. Well, no, that's for church. No, that's not how it works. That's hypocrisy. I'm as guilty of, of hypocrisy as the next person. I'm here to lovingly, fervently confront you in one of the most subversive, subliminal sins that exist today. I want you to know that Jesus loves you in spite of that. This is not an issue where Jesus would like to love you, but you're sinful, so he can't. Let's take care of the sin so Jesus can love you. No. Jesus loves you so much, he doesn't want you to stay in that. He would rather you be forgiven than to rightly judge you in your sin. He's already put that judgment on his son on the cross. There's no need to condemn you to hell for it. It will happen if you're not a Christian. It will happen if you're not in Christ, but it doesn't have to. So what is this gospel message that Paul has brought? The gospel message. Most people get really offended when, they, when you tell them that you have the only way. A friend of mine who will remain nameless have an ongoing argument over who serves the best burgers. Um, for here, most people love Five Guys. Anybody here like Five Guys? Raise your hand. Okay. Anybody here heard of Five Guys? My goodness, there's only a couple people. Five Guys burgers and fries. Great burgers and fries. 
I'm not going to use, in using the language of today's youth, I'm not going to front. Five Guys Burgers and Fries is very good. To the people who have never tried In-N-Out Burger, you, many of you are like, In-N-Out Burger, what is that? Well, they're a chain that can only be found in California. And I love Central New York, and I love the salt potatoes, and I love this, and I love that. But when it comes to burgers, In-N-Out is the burger to have. If you ever have the ability to get within 100 miles of one of these places, drive there, crawl there, run there, and you will see. Okay? That's chicken, Mike. <laughs> now, why do I bring that up? Well, I, I wish that it was because In-N-Out was paying me, but they're not. Um, why do I bring that up? Because when you start saying and you tar- start taking a definitive stand, you find opposition. Even in something as simple as a burger or coffee or a television program or a sports star, whatever. When you take a definitive stand, there is opposition ready. One of the reasons why people hate Christianity is because we've taken a definitive stand based on the word of God. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That no, no one comes into the Father except through him. I've even heard men like Deepak Chopra, who really needs a lot of prayer, say, well, that's through, he means through his example. Through his godly life. That's not what the Bible says. That's a very poor way of understanding and reading the Bible and knowing the Gospels. Through Jesus, through he is the veil ripped in half. He is the door into the fold. It's through Jesus that we are saved. And you're going to find opposition in that. When you preach your version of the gospel, you're going to find opposition. If it's a bad version, then you need to be confronted on it. But if it's the Bible's version, you're going to be okay when people take a stand against it. So what is the gospel? Romans 5 and 8 says, but God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the, that's the, the, the essence, the, the, the bouillon, if you will, of the gospel. Boiled down, condensed. We were sinners, but God loves us so much that he saves us before we've done anything. The gospel of the world says, make sure you get it right, and maybe at the end God will love you. There's a lifetime of uncertainty. There's a lifetime of abandonment. But maybe at the end you'll get it right. Colossians 2 and 8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in Christ. 
This is preceded by Colossians 2 and 6 uh, and verse 7. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You have the gospel message. What's the response to a gospel message? Live for Jesus, in Jesus, by Jesus. By his power, walking in him daily, following what he has done. Loving those who love you, loving those who hate you. Having sound doctrine, knowing God as he is portrayed in the word. That's the gospel message, that Jesus died for you when you were unlovable. That Jesus loved you when you were distant from him. You know the gospel, you know the testimonies we love? It's the ones of people who are so far away from God. We give them much more credit. I want to tell you today that if you are in sin, that you're very far away from God too. But here is your opportunity to repent. This morning, and I, I don't say this to flip myself up, but whatever, came in and I noticed that the vacuum fairy hadn't been here. I thought, okay, well, I'm okay with it, but I'm a dude, so I better vacuum it up because the ladies are going to come in and be like, oh, Pastor Tony. So... I start vacuuming, and as I got to the center aisle, I, I, I was reminded of I, – I wouldn't call it a vision necessarily. It was just this realization, I guess, of the, the countless sinners who walked down this aisle to become a saint. The countless men and women and children who came up petrified, scared, crying, not knowing – but convicted and knowing that they had to walk forward, came to this altar and gave their lives to Jesus. I was reminded that over decades of time, this has occurred, and for decades to come, this will happen. Church, do you have to walk up an aisle and kneel at an altar to be saved? No. But this is going to be your challenge today. If you need forgiveness, whether you are a Christian or not, I, I don't care if you've been a Christian since you woke up at the age of two or five, or your parents were in the ministry, or whatever your heritage or pedigree is, I don't care. What matters is, if, did you did you get your did you get convicted by today's sermon? How do you feel about your sin today? Do you find yourself being a hypocrite? I'm one way here. I'm wearing this mask so people don't really know me. But when I go home, then I'm really who I am. But even then, I'm, I'm not who I really am before my husband or my wife or my children. It's really when I'm all by myself, then I'm really who I am. That's hypocrisy. But that's the symptom. What is that based on? Are you afraid? Are you afraid that people will get to know you? People will think you're crazy? People will hear you say that you love Jesus and then write you off? That might happen. Sometimes, sometimes fears are justified, meaning they're actual things that will occur. I would encourage you that if you know they're going to happen, why be afraid of them? Jesus promises us that we will find opposition and confrontation living for him, living through him, living by him. We no longer have to fear it. We at some point are going to say something and somebody's going to say, no. That's not wrong. Jesus is not the only way. No reason to be afraid of it. It's going to happen. They're going to see you live a certain way 
outside of church, and they're going to come to one of two conclusions. Jesus is somebody or Jesus is nobody. Everybody can put on the churchy facade at church. But at work, that's a whole other story. And if you tell somebody, hey, come to church with me, and they're astonished that you go to church, that should be a red flag. Had somebody tell me once, I'm surprised you didn't know I was a Christian. That's a testimony for you, not me. I should be able to see some type of fruit, right? You knew I was a Christian. Now, I wasn't wearing a big flag or a shirt that says, hey, look at me, I'm Christian-y. I just put wise on the end of all my words. If people don't know that you're a Christian and you're not swinging your Bible at their forehead, please, that's the worst way for somebody to find out you're a Christian. If they can't tell based on your actions that you serve someone greater than yourself, there's a problem. So here's the moment, the opportunity to repent. Pastor Tony, people might see you. Now I'll start first. Let's all stand, okay? We're all guilty of this. Oh, okay. Come on up. I didn't know what the ahem was at first. Go ahead, Ben. So, hi, my name is Ben. I'm new here. Uh, I served at a church for four years previous to this, but as Tony was preaching, Pastor Tony was preaching, I, uh, I have um, something that I felt led to share. I, I believe fully that the most effective p- part of Jesus' ministry with his disciples was that he lived his life in front of them. He had nothing from them. And uh, he, he, it was honest and truthful and open. And I desire to live my life the same way. And, uh, you know, I have made my share of mistakes. And uh, if anybody, um, if I can help anybody to, you know, redirect their path because of my mistakes, I'm going to share every single one of them. And, you know, as he was preaching about the sin of hypocrisy, I was reminded myself of, you know, the past four years. Uh, Four years ago, I became a Christian. And immediately I heard the call on my life to be a pastor. And I stepped into that call and I trained to be a pastor. And last year, after three years of training, I was licensed. And the one thing that I struggled with my whole walk is the fact that Jesus actually loved me, believing he actually loved me. Um, for the past two years, I, you know, whenever I prayed, the Lord would say to me, do you believe that I love you? And I gave the Christian the answer. Uh, yes, Jesus, or yes, Lord, I know that you love me. And I would go on my merry way, but I felt I felt something that wasn't right. I wouldn't even look at myself in the mirror. And every day he would ask me the question, do you believe that you love me? And I said, yes, Lord, I know that you love me. Just avoiding the truth of the matter at hand, what was going on in my heart. And I would stand with a microphone and say, God loves you. You should believe that he loves you. You don't need to condemn yourself over your sins. I would say it. And I would walk home and I would sit in my chair and I wouldn't believe it for myself. And then I was confronted uh, just very recently by a movie. Um, you know, I, my father loves, loves, loves Rich Mullins. Um, I grew up listening to Rich Mullins. Uh, he's a Christian musician. And they just made a movie about him. He passed in the early 90s. Um, and he was a man that struggled with the same exact thing. And he was confronted in his hypocrisy by another man. 
his name was Brennan Manning, and he basically, in one of his you know worst moments in his darkest moments, this man named Brennan Manning came to him and came alongside him and confronted him about this because Rich Mullins would sing songs and he would stand there and talk about the love of God. He would sing about the love of God, but it was apparent in his life he didn't truly believe it. And, you know, Tony is giving you an opportunity to repent and move forward because if this kind of thing goes on, it's going to affect your life. It affected my relationship with my own wife. It affected my relationship with my daughter. And the last thing I ever want to see is that because it was the worst thing for me to feel that separation from God and my wife. Uh, So there you go. Thank you, Ben. Let me give you a really heartbreaking analogy. Yes, thank you. Imagine if your child came to you today, those of you who have children, whether they're six or 60, and says, I know you love me, but I can't accept that. I, I know that, you, that a parent loves a child, but I don't know that you love me. Would that not break your heart to hear your child say that to you? It would break my heart. Because I would go back and think of all the things I've done to pour out my love to them. I believe that God the Father wants you to know that he loves you. The last thing he wants is for you to have a lot of information about him loving you without actually knowing it. So in this act of repentance, I want you, along with me, to repent of this same exact thing. And we're going to pray, Lord, increase our belief. Help our unbelief. When Jesus was confronted with a a young demon-possessed boy, and his father, the father, said, heal him if you can. And Jesus said, all things are possible to, to him who believes. And the father said, I believe, help my unbelief. And one of the things Pastor Ben just said is exactly that. I, I believe that you love me, but I need you to help the unbelief. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many people need help with that unbelief? I want to pray with you today. I want today to, be, to mark the day of the day you begin living a life knowing that Christ loves you. I'm going to pray. If you'd like to come to the altar, I'm going to ask you to come to the altar. Now, maybe you don't want to. That's okay. But I want to encourage you that just a small time of intimacy will do wonders for you. Let's pray. Lord, your word is convicting. It's truthful. It it tells us all we need to know about you. But sometimes it tells us a truth that we know in our head without knowing in our heart. We can say that you love us without actually experiencing that love. We can know that you died for us, not knowing that that death was spurred by love. We can know that you are God and not know that you love us. Lord, your word says that with all of our deeds, if we don't have love, they're worthless. I believe the same is found here. That if we know you love us, but don't truly live by it, then we're in worse shape than even a non-believer. I pray, Lord, today that as those who have come to the altar, that they would know that you love them. That they would know 
what Jesus has done for them. That they'd be reminded that you're not just a God in heaven, but you're our Father in heaven. That we are children of the Most High God. That if we are in Christ, we are the adopted children in your family. And we're not treated as outsiders. We're not treated as as the others. We're treated as your children. That you have a love for us that greatly exceeds the love we have for our own children. But like that love is what your love is. I pray, Lord, that for those who haven't come to the altar, first I pray against Satan and rebuke him for causing fear. That this is a safe place, that none of us fear each other. And if there's any that are moralistic or legalistic or religious and don't appreciate this aspect, Lord, I I just pray that you would show them the love in it. I pray for those who, who are afraid to come up that you would find them today. For those who find themselves in the sin of hypocrisy, Lord, that you'd forgive us. I pray for myself. I repent, Lord. I repent of the times where I've been one way here and another way there. I repent of the hypocrisy of knowing that you love me without knowing that you love me. I repent of dressing up my sin. I repent of making it more Christian, making it acceptable, making it profitable, because it's none of those things. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. And I am confident that you do. I thank you that you've given us the story of the prodigal son, that as the son is coming home from his wasted life, Lord, that you are waiting with arms open to embrace your son who has come home. For your children that are coming home today, Lord, may you embrace them and may they feel the hug of a father. In Jesus' name, amen.